Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm Stephen Colbrook. Today I'll be speaking with Brett Crutch, author of Dying to be Normal, Gay Martyrs and the Transformation of American Sexual Politics, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Crutch examines how secular LGBTQ activists use public mourning and memorialization as strategies to influence political debates over LGBTQ rights and to promote assimilation. Brett, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Great. So I'd like to begin by asking you about your own intellectual background and what brought you to this particular topic. Sure. I've had a bit of an unorthodox queer academic background. Uh, I studied religion and gender studies at Emory University as an undergrad, and then I went straight to graduate school at Harvard uh, in their divinity school. Uh, This was 2002, and I wanted to look at queer issues and religion. And at that time, there was no one at Harvard who really could even imagine queerness and religion coming together as um, an academic topic. Uh, So I left after one year. I like to tell everyone I'm a Harvard dropout. And uh, I went to NYU in New York and and finished a master's degree there and, and then stayed working at NYU for a few years. And then I started... Uh, writing about LGBT issues uh, in the United States and in publishing some freelance essays um, in the Washington Post and Newsday and The Advocate. And in doing that, um, I started thinking again about uh, what an academic uh, career would look like and how I could bring some of my thoughts on contemporary LGBT issues in the United States um, to, uh, to religious studies scholarship. And uh, so what I, what I most wanted was a mentor, which was what I didn't have uh, when I was at Harvard. I wanted someone who could really help guide all of that. And so I was fortunate to study under Rebecca Alpert at Temple University, who was one of the people who led the way in thinking about queer issues in religion and in particular queer issues in uh, American Judaism. And uh, so I finished my PhD in 2015, and I'm now at Haverford College, where I teach on religion and U.S. politics and religion and sexuality. Great, fantastic. So your book sort of feeds into debates about queer assimilation. Could you just outline exactly what that means uh, for our listeners and also sort of how it fits into the broader history of gay activism in the last 20 or so years? Certainly. So the book looks at the two-decade period of 1995 to 2015, and I selected that um, particularly for the question that you're asking. Um, In 1995, at the end of that year, is when in the United States uh, medications became available that really dramatically changed the AIDS epidemic. And for many people with access to those medicines, Um, It changed HIV-AIDS from a largely deadly situation to a more manageable one. The uh, death uh, toll went declined in 1996 for the first time. Uh, And so in 2015, 
Two decades later, that's when the U.S. Supreme Court made same-sex marriage uh, a legal possibility throughout the country. So I was interested in how, in that 20-year period, did we go from an image of uh, a queer community that was largely associated with death um, through unbridled sexual frivolity to a very different image 20 years later of um, LGBT people as committed to lifelong coupled monogamy? How is it that some LGBT people, particularly uh, gays and lesbians, were able to become normal uh, in, in many Americans' eyes? Hmm. So how did religion and in particular uh, Protestantism feed into that assimilation? Right. So this is one of the uh, interventions that I want to be making into discussions about um, uh, assimilation broadly, which is many people have noted that um, this process is raised, which it is. It has a lot to do with whiteness. Um, it has a lot to do with gender conformity. It has a lot to do with class. Um, but it also has to do with being in the United States, religion, um, and being religious in uh, ways that align with the ideals of white mainline Protestant Christianity. And so I focus on these martyr figures, people who become political emblems for the LGBT movement, uh, like Matthew Shepard and Tyler Clemente and others, and how activists use religion to present those martyrs to the American public as acceptable uh, gay figures. And part of them being acceptable is by using Christianity in particular ways um, that resonates broadly with the American culture. Hmm. Okay, so your first chapter uh, details the reaction to the assassination of Harvey Milk, uh, one of the most important figures in LGBT history. Could you just briefly outline uh, who Harvey Milk was and also the circumstances of his death? Sure. So although the book looks at 1995 to 2015, I felt that I needed to include Harvey Milk um, because uh, although his death occurred in 1978, he became a more prominent martyr figure for the LGBT community uh, many years later. When he died in 1978, there wasn't a national reaction to his death. It took time for many more people to learn about who Harvey Milk was. So he becomes much more famous and popular in death, and he changes in death. As a martyr, he's a different person than he was as a man. Uh, so Harvey Milk um, uh, was uh, a gay Jew who grew up in New York, and he moved to San Francisco in 1972 at the age of 42. Prior to that, he had never been involved in gay activism. Um, but he owned a small business, and he became annoyed by a particular tax he would have to pay. And out of that annoyance, he ran for a position on San Francisco's Board of Supervisors, which is a local city council position. He lost, and he ends up running for election multiple times. And on the fourth time of running for something, he wins a seat on the Board of Supervisors. And uh, throughout those years of running for things, he developed a reputation as an advocate for the gay community in San Francisco and for California as well. Um, and uh, 11 months into his term, another 
uh, person on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, Dan White, um, assassinated both Milk and San Francisco's mayor. Um, and, uh, and then since then, um, activists starting in San Francisco, but then it over time grew um, nationally and then internationally turned him into a martyr figure for uh, the LGBT movement. Great. So could you just outline for us the process of him becoming a national martyr as opposed to just a, a local martyr in San Francisco and also how religion played into that, particularly his Jewishness and uh, how the memory of Harvey Milk is very different from the man. Right. So to get at that, what I do in chapter one is I also narrate some of American AIDS history, because that's what really is taking place then after his death in 78. And and then in 1995, the period that I focus on. And uh, what I hone in on, on particular in that chapter is the AIDS quilt, which became the largest AIDS memorial in the world. And it was started by uh, a friend of Harvey Milk, uh, Cleve Jones. And uh, Jones has written and has said in interviews when describing why he created the AIDS quilt that he wanted a memorial that would not be threatening to non-gay people. Right, Part of the concern with the early years of the AIDS epidemic was that many um, people with AIDS and their friends uh, believed that most straight people did not care at all that gay and bisexual men were getting sick and dying by the thousands. And so uh, Jones said he needed something that was palatable to heterosexual audiences that would also get a reaction. So he comes up with this idea of the quilt, where each quilt panel uh, is about the size of a human coffin to represent all of the lives lost. And uh, the point that I'm trying to make by describing that history uh, in this chapter is that then in many ways, Harvey Milk, um, as a martyr, is like the AIDS quilt. He's someone who in death becomes more palatable to uh, mainstream heterosexual audiences and Christian audiences who aren't as familiar with uh, Jews and Jewishness. So um, the effort to make him into a martyr actually starts soon after his, his death. Um, and uh, there's a book that comes out about him, a documentary film, um, an opera. Um, and, and this all sort of builds and grows. Um, in 2003, this is how I opened the first chapter. In 2003, there's the first museum in the United States uh, for LGBT history. And it's in San Francisco. And at the opening exhibit of the very first museum, they, the, the, the centerpiece of this museum opening is Harvey Milk's suit that he was wearing uh, when he was shot to death. And the museum uh, hangs his suit uh, with outstretched arms so that it looks just like a cross. Um, and, um, and the, the, the exhibit is titled, um, something about the, uh, life and afterlife of a modern gay martyr. And so I open with that to just show, you know, right away how Christianized he's become, uh, in, in, as a martyr. And so much of the ways in which he's memorialized in, in plays, in, in books, in the operas, in the, in the major motion picture Milk is um, 
uh, an erasure of much of his Jewishness, not always all of it, and it's different in each representation, um, but he becomes significantly less Jewish. You know, he had grown up in this Long Island Lithuanian Jewish family um, where they had founded their own synagogue. They had started a Jewish uh, social club on Long Island because uh, the Jews in their area had been excluded from the more waspy social clubs. He joined a Jewish fraternity in college. He could still carry on bits of Yiddish as an adult. Um, he attended a Passover Seder with the same friend every year in San Francisco. And he himself spoke about his Jewishness as what contributed to the type of gay activist he was. He talked about the Holocaust with some regularity in his speeches um, and how that shaped him and how he felt it should inform the ways that gays respond to oppression in the United States. Uh, but he become, but most all of that becomes uh, erased uh, in, in his memorialization. And then the other thing that I focus on in terms of making him palatable is he becomes far less sexual. So following the AIDS epidemic, where gay men in particular were blamed for bringing this plague to the United States through, um, sexual promiscuity, um, You know, I just don't think that a major emblem for the LGBT movement could be someone who um, uh, openly uh, thwarted the Protestant sexual expectations of monogamous coupling. But that's what Harvey Milk did and was. And it wasn't just for the sake of it. He wrote and spoke on developing a sexual ethic that um, was about loving more than one person at the same time. He believed that communities could be strengthened if people were not paired off into possessive couplings, and that if everyone could be honest about loving more than one person at the same time or having sexual relations with more than one person at the same time, then that could strengthen communities. And so, but that sort of sexual ethic, that outlook um, was, uh, you know, uh, following the the AIDS epidemic, um, not palatable really, and and so he becomes far less sexual as a martyr uh, to make him appeal to broader audiences. Hmm. Okay, so uh, your second and third chapters, in many respects, look at the other side of this coin. So you have the erasure of Milk's uh, Jewishness uh, versus the kind of focus on a particular type of person in the uh, 1990s and the early 21st century as uh, the, the, the typical gay martyr, as it were. Could you briefly describe uh, what the characteristics of uh, that was and also the, uh, the circumstances around uh, the tragic death of Matthew Shepard? Sure. So Matthew Shepard's murder in 1998 is... Uh, He becomes the first uh, LGBT person in America whose death instantly mattered to the nation. So although there were certainly thousands of people in San Francisco who cared that Milk died in 78, we get a totally different, much bigger national reaction when college student Matthew Shepard is murdered in 1998. So President Clinton, the president of the time, Uh, issued a public statement from the White House 
uh, when Shepard uh, was killed. Within the first week after his death, there were more than 60 vigils and memorial marches across the country, many with thousands of people in attendance. Um, There was a vigil for him on the steps of the United States Capitol building that was attended by uh, Congress people and senators and celebrities and that was televised. Um, CNN had requested that his funeral be broadcast live so all Americans could participate in mourning Shepard. His family denied uh, that request, though, but they allowed reporters into the church. So this is a very different reaction. And and part of um, the questions for this chapter for me were, you know, why did um, Americans, why did straight Americans who had been rather silent and apathetic about the vast number of gay, bi, and trans AIDS deaths and other anti-LGBT murders, um, why did they care so much about Shepard? And there are many reasons for that, and they they uh, intersect. They, they in part have to do with race, right? He's white and blonde, Um He's male. He's a gender-conforming male. He's middle class. Um, He's in college, which is respectable. Um, And he also, although he was 21 when he was killed, a legal adult, he looked much younger. So he was only about five feet, two inches tall and weighed around 105 pounds and still wore orthodontic braces. So although he was technically an adult, he, he looked much, much younger and activists were able to emphasize that he was an adolescent. And this is at a time in the United States where um, there's now this uh, a few decades history of political rhetoric about protecting children. And so now Matthew Shepard becomes an emblem of a gay adolescent, which was different from the typical image of LGBT people, which was usually that of adults separate from families. But here was Shepard who looked like this this kid who was part of a loving Christian American family. And the Christianness then is what I I really highlight um, because activists highlighted it. And then the media recycled what um, activists highlighted. So, you know, the public was told, for example, that Shepard joined only two clubs at his college, the University of Wyoming. He joined the LGBT student club and the club for Episcopal students, right? So he's a a committed practicing Protestant. Um, The American public was told that he had been an acolyte in his Episcopal church. So he hadn't served as an acolyte for years, but structuring him as an uh, an acolyte um, or reminding people that he has been an acolyte uh, presented the public with an image of like this good Christian youth rather than, and this connects to the earlier chapter, rather than to an image of a sexualized adult gay man. So as the good Christian youth, he, his sexuality gets stripped away here, and uh, he becomes safer and, and more palatable to the American public. The other piece related to religion with Matthew Shepard that I think is important is that it's through Matthew Shepard that the American public becomes introduced to someone who will will become an infamous 
uh, figure in the United States, and that's the Reverend Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church. So Fred Phelps had been protesting at the funerals of uh, gay men who had died from AIDS complications for many years, but he really had not gotten much media attention. But it's through Shepherd that Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church become household names. So as I had mentioned, CNN had wanted to broadcast Shepherd's funeral live, um, but they, the Shepherd family said they didn't want that type of scrutiny on, on that day. And so the press largely turned their attention to what took place outside the funeral, which was when uh, Phelps and about 15 to 20 people from his Westboro Baptist Church uh, protested outside Shepherd's funeral with signs that said things like Matt and hell and, and Phelps would wave a Bible and scream things like God hates fags outside the funeral that day, about a thousand people who didn't know Shepard also showed up just to be of support. And when they saw the Westboro Baptist church protest, they linked arms and formed a line in between the church of the funeral and the Westboro Baptist church protesters and started singing very loudly, the Christian hymn, amazing grace with the hopes that the people inside the funeral would not hear any of the anti-gay screaming. And uh, as reporters came out to the out from the funeral uh, and started talking about it, they reported that um, Matt's shepherd's cousin, an Episcopal priest, uh, you know, starts the funeral by saying things like Matt is loved by God and Matt loves God. And that love is more powerful than any voice of hate. So we have these images and rhetoric of shepherd as loved by God, uh, juxtaposed with this image of Phelps waving a Bible and screaming, God hates fags. And uh, we have a literal dividing line, right? These amazing grace singers, a thousand of them linking arms. And I think for many American people, that image of Phelps on the one end with the vitriol and then this five foot two young looking Matthew Shepard on the other and the amazing grace singers in between really sent a message like, which side are you on, right? Are you on the side of the person who is waving a Bible and angrily screaming? Or are you, are, are you on the side of the docile, meek, practicing Protestant who happens to be gay? And, and for many Americans, I do think that was a really significant turning point for them in their thoughts about gay people in the United States. Mm, okay, fascinating. Uh, so my next question uh, brings it up to uh, the more present day. Um, I was wondering how the It's Gets Better project feeds into current narratives about gay martyrdom. Sure. It was actually It Gets Better that started this entire project for me. It Gets Better started in 2010 as a response to LGBT teenage suicides, and it became very popular quickly. Um, Tens of thousands of people made It Gets Better videos, including celebrities and politicians like President Obama and lots of straight people, uh, you know, made these videos telling LGBT youth, don't worry how bad it is now, life will get better. And for me, I thought there was something strange about everyone telling LGBT youth that life will get better simply because they will get older, that that there's, there's certainly no guarantee of that. And, and so I wanted to think through why do so many people support that message? 
And um, one of the reasons, there are many, and again, you know, they have to do with class and, and race and gender. And so I look at, you know, who's been making It Gets Better videos. And in, in one way, you know, in the book, I highlight sort of the lack of contributions from many different types of religious communities. Um, but I also felt there was just something to that message, right? Like that your pain and your traumas have a purpose and, and your life will be better because of what you've gone through. And, and, and in some ways, I make the you know I make the argument that that idea that your pain has a purpose and and will lead to a better life um, is a sort of secular Christian message that certainly resonates for many Christians and even for non Christians living in a predominantly Christian culture. It's certainly um, the ways that many Christians narrate the story of Jesus of his degradation that leads to glory. It's certainly the story of many. Christian martyrs in early Christianity, the Middle Ages, and more recently, that one's pain and suffering has a purpose for a greater good. Um, And so that's part of uh, the religious messages of It Gets Better. Um, It's also, you know, in the It Gets Better narrative, the people who started, Dan Savage and his husband, Terry Miller, they say things like, um, you know, you have to tough this period out. And that also sort of resonates as a sort of turn the other cheek, have faith in the march of time. Everything's moving teleologically towards better days. And, you know, these are all faith-based promises, right? There's certainly mm-hmm. no guarantee of that. And I think the present political situation in the United States speaks to the fact that, um, there's certainly no guarantee that the future will be better than the past. Okay, so uh, your your chapter also deals with the the tragic death of Tyler Clementi. Could you outline the links between uh, that and the It's Get Better project? Absolutely. So Tyler Clementi committed suicide in 2010, and uh, he becomes the next LGBT person in the United States to immediately garner national attention after Matthew Shepard. So in the 12 years that have gone by, Clementi is now the next person that really gets massive national attention as an LGBT death. And what I wanted to highlight is that although 12 years have gone by, the type of person who gets public mourning and who activists then Uh, turn into a political emblem and who straight Americans seem to care for and want to um, produce cultural change for, well, wouldn't you know, he looks very, very similar to Matthew Shepard, right? So Clementi, again, is white, male, gender conforming in college, young, he's 18, right? So also technically an adult, Um, but um, the American public was constantly told that he was a violin prodigy, and and prodigy, you know, signifies youth. Um, And he was also uh, a practicing Protestant in different ways than Shepard. Shepard was a mainline Protestant, meaning non-evangelical, and Clementi was um, quite active in an evangelical Protestant church. So the discussions around religion play out differently with Clementi than they do with Shepard. But I wanted to highlight that... Um, look, you know, the image of who counts as normal, who counts as acceptable, who counts as worthy of public mourning 
really hasn't changed that much. And if those are representative of who matters in this country, those are very narrow parameters, right? You've got to fit a very narrow set of identities and boxes to, to be seen as, as worthy of, of the America public's attention. Hmm. Okay, so um, we know that there's a current epidemic of violence against transgender folk, particularly uh, transgender folk of colour. So how has the response of gay rights activists been to these deaths? And also, how does it differ from the forms of gay martyrdom that you outlined earlier in your book? Right. So I wanted to make that um, the full focus of one of the book's chapters. And so that's the fourth chapter's uh, focus where basically I'm saying, okay, look, so all of this time where Matthew Shepard, Harvey Milk, Tyler Clementi have become household names and have been used for political purposes throughout that whole time, there were other uh, LGBTQ activists who were trying to make certain people into martyrs who were trying to make the deaths of particular LGBT people into household names, but with much less success. And those people were overwhelmingly transgender and queer people of color. And so I wanted to look at some examples of that and some things that were going on throughout the same time period um, that were not focused on white, cisgender, uh, middle-class gay men. And, uh, and so in, in this chapter, I focus on uh, three films that uh, LGBT activists use as a way to try to get this message across and try to get into, um, you know, American homes uh, and thinking about film as a strategy for LGBT activism. And so the first I focus on is the film Boys Don't Cry, which is about the murder of transgender man. Uh, Brandon Tina. He was murdered in, in 1993, uh, but the the movie Boys Don't Cry, which m- made him more well known, uh, came out in in 1999. And and his death, his murder, is significant for for a few reasons. One, because um, at the murder trial. Um, uh, for his death, many uh, trans activists showed up and spoke to the small media presence um, uh, about his murder. And many credit that moment as um, something that ignited a, a national transgender political movement. And it's in that period that we start seeing more use of the word transgender as opposed to some older terms that were, were used. And then the 1999 film Boys Don't Cry, um, you know, received Academy Awards. It was very well received both by um, critics, heterosexual audiences, and and, and queer audiences. Um, and, it, it, and it made Brandon's story better known to the American public. But uh, part of what I address in the book is that in the uh, you know, almost 20 years since the book, or excuse me, since the movie came out, uh, transgender activists and people have really um, now protested um, this film uh, because of uh, having a, a cisgender actress 
play the transgender part. And so I focus on how transgender politics have changed just in this short period of time and how a movie that initially was pretty well received has now been boycotted and protested in various places. I also highlight that the way that um, the film constructed Brandon in 1999, I believe was based on the popularity of Matthew Shepard as a beloved, sympathetic figure that uh, Brandon, as presented in the movie, is quite similar uh, to Shepard. Um, I also then focus on the 2001 murder of F.C. Martinez, who was a uh, a Native American Navajo. Um, he um, uh, the, his parent his mother uses uh, male pronouns, but F.C. was 16 when murdered, um, assigned male at birth, um, but uh, started wearing makeup and carrying a purse to school around middle school. And FC's mother, when this started happening, said, you know, there's a word for that in, in Navajo for people who are um, uh, partly male as well as partly female. We call it Natle. And, and uh, FC apparently responded, oh, so cool, I'm a Natle. And so um, I, I highlight then in, in this uh, section of the chapter how more than 140 Native American nations before um, uh, they were colonized had language and terms to describe more than two two genders. So the Navajo, for example, had four genders. Some had three. Some had many, many more. Um, But the film that I highlight in that section of the book called Two Spirits um, really presents how assimilation and assimilation to the white Christian culture of the United States has been quite dangerous for um, gender variant Native Americans and Native Americans more broadly. And so the film uses Martinez's murder to address this historical erasure of gender variance and gender diversity within Native American nations. And so they show one particular painting in the film of Spanish conquistadors, the Spanish colonizers to the America's continent, who would take gender variant Native Americans and throw them into pits publicly, where then uh, dogs would attack them, you know, to send a very public message that this was never going to be acceptable. And so then, you know, one of the things I want the chapter to question is, really, how much safer are gender variant Native Americans Uh, in the present day than in centuries ago when colonizers first encountered them and how have these sort of assimilationist politics or how do these assimilationist politics contribute to more violence against uh, gender variant people and queer people of color broadly. The last uh, main thing that I look at in that chapter is um, a group of women uh, from Newark and New Jersey, a group of uh, black Uh, queer women, black lesbians, who were attacked in a homophobic assault in New York City. They weren't murdered, um, but a uh, a heterosexual man on the sidewalk, um, cat called them. And and then they, you know, tell them that all all seven of them are, 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 are lesbians. And and then he becomes rather violent and um, starts threatening them. He eventually um, pulls one of uh, the dreadlocks of one of the women with such intensity that he yanks it from her scalp. 
um, he starts choking another one. And while he's choking one of the women, uh, one of the smallest women in the group pulls out a, a small pen knife and lunges for him and ends up hitting uh, both his backpack and his abdomen. He told first responders that he didn't even know he had been stabbed until he saw blood on the ground. But then what happens is all seven of those women, although they were attacked and there's security footage to show that uh, and and really defending themselves, they all got arrested uh, and were sent to Rikers Island Jail. The man who started the homophobic assault never was arrested. And um, uh, three of the women accept plea bargains and then four of the women go to trial and all four of them were sent to prison uh, for various time periods. And uh, even before that happens, what I highlight in in the chapter is the way that the New York City newspapers, including the New York Times, describe this group of of black queer women as a gang, as a violent gang, uh, you know, and who the press really presented as guilty long before um, their criminal trial. And I use that to highlight um, other instances of violence against um, queer people of color, particularly uh, trans women of color. So I highlight the case of Cece McDonald, who was attacked in a similar situation um, by a white woman and white man outside of a bar in Minneapolis, where uh, a white woman smashed the bar across this transgender uh, woman of color's face. And then a man with Nazi tattoos uh, basically um, came after her to attack her. She pulls a pair of scissors out of her bag to protect herself, and uh, they go into his abdomen, and he ends up dying. And 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 the transgender woman of color is who ends up going to prison, uh, not the white woman who started the whole thing. So I wanted this chapter to address, you know, all of these ways in which these promises of it gets better and and the veneration of white cisgender men really means nothing to many segments of the queer community within the United States because of the ways that um, issues of race in particular shape our criminal justice system and who Americans see as worthy of value. Mm. Okay, so a slightly more uh, thematic question taking your book as a whole. Um, Given the uh, simulationist uh, strategies of mainstream gay martyrdom, has there been any space during this period uh, for a kind of more queer memorialization that rejects the simulationist strategies? Yes, and I think in some ways that you know has always been there, and. Um, with each sort of move for more mainstream assimilation, there have been pockets of the uh, LGBTQ community who have resisted this and have um, and have uh, wanted a, a queerer outlook. And we can see that sort of through each through each period. Um, I really focus on that more in the book's uh, epilogue which looked then uh, one year past the 1995 to 2015 period for the book uh, and looked at the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016 and responses to that. So the Pulse nightclub shooting was the largest um, uh, murder, mass murder of LGBT Americans in U.S. history. And it was primarily LGBT people of color who were killed at Pulse nightclub. I compare it with um, what had been the largest 
mass murder of uh, LGBT people, which was an arson attack on a bar, the upstairs lounge in New Orleans in the 1970s, that really got very little attention. More than 30 gay people died. But um, Pulse became major national and international news. And what was unique about Pulse is that, um, you know, many of these earlier figures that I discuss in the book, it's really just LGBT activists who use them for political purposes. But with Pulse, lots of people use the Pulse murders uh, for political purposes. Um, uh, President Obama used it to advocate for greater gun control legislation, and then primarily then-candidate for President Donald Trump used the Pulse murders to say that he had been correct all along about uh, the need to ban Muslims from entering the United States. But what comes from that were several sort of queer alternatives to um, memorialization and queer um, rejections of being accepted by mainstream white heterosexual American culture. So one of the things that I highlight in the book is uh, soon after the Pulse nightclub shooting, another uh, gay club in Orlando hosted uh, a memorial for those who died at Pulse. And it was uh, hosted by a drag queen, more than 40 drag queens from around the country came to the memorialization. And it was a night of heavy drinking, heavy dancing, and and was really meant to, you know, I think, say to the world, if, if this person who came into uh, Pulse wants to eradicate what queer people do when they gather in clubs at night, then we're going to be even more outrageous uh, than we were before. And you start seeing op-eds in places like the New York Times saying things like that. Um, and a new activist group formed in the wake of the Pulse nightclub shooting called GAG, Gays Against Guns, that's meant for LGBTQ people. It was formed by people who had been active in the AIDS activist group ACT UP, which was certainly an anti-assimilationist group. And they've um, been getting quite a bit of attention for the types of protests that they do across uh, the country. And so then I also, uh, you know, use that epilogue to highlight the work of other people who um, more recently have gotten a little bit of attention, like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and Audre Lorde, all uh, people of color who really rejected assimilation and who felt that um, assimilation will always marginalize more people than it will include them. And that uh, if we are going to turn people into political emblems, then perhaps we should be looking at people who were thinking about those who've been excluded throughout this whole time. Mm, Fascinating. Well, thank you very much for being on the program today, Brett. That was a very interesting conversation. Uh, We just have time to ask you one more question, which is what are you working on now? Sure. So I'm currently... uh, finishing co-editing a book uh, with Nora Rubel at the University of Rochester uh, that is called or is tentatively called Queer Jews on TV, Transparent and the Changing Landscape of Jewish Popular Culture. 
that uses the television show Transparent to think about uh, transgender representation, queer politics, and Jews in America in the first decades of the 21st century. Uh, and then I'm also starting work on a new longer project that looks at the rise of religious freedom bills and rhetoric in the United States as one of the primary ways of opposing LGBTQ political advances. Well, that sounds fascinating. I very much look forward to reading the results of that research. Uh, thanks again for being on the program today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen.